Luke chapter 5. Drop everything. We commonly use this phrase when mundane responsibilities are overwhelmed by the urgent or the tragic or the phenomenal. We may drop everything to listen to breaking news of a great tragedy or victory or breakthrough. Marketers are routinely telling us, drop everything and run to our store to buy this or that product. It's on sale today. You've got to drop everything and go. 60,000 or more baseball fans can drop everything to watch their team in the playoffs on a weekday afternoon. A very busy pastor recounted some time ago that he picked up a book one day, read a few pages, and dropped everything, literally. He left town and hid till he read through that book. It was, had such a great impact on him. There are times when we drop everything, maybe to receive an out-of-town guest that was unexpected. Or maybe when we're informed of a death in the family. We're so busy. But news comes, or some urgent thing arrives before us, and we drop everything. We've all experienced this routine of life, when the, this routine of life is overwhelmed by the phenomenal or the urgent. Usually such times are short-lived, aren't they? But there are other times when we drop everything and we never again return to life as it was. That is the case with the man whose call we are uh, considering here today in Luke chapter 5. This was the case with a certain tax collector named Levi, on the day that he met at his tax booth at Capernaum, one by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. As a Jewish tax collector, Levi worked his people in behalf of Herod Antipas. To be a tax collector, you had to sell your soul to Rome, if not to the devil. There, are, there were many kinds of taxes that the empire laid out and established, but there were these other taxes, toll-type taxes, that were constantly being reaped, and the set price was nowhere to be found. Tax collectors would then, there would be an estimate made, in this region we should see this much revenue in tolls, and so the tax collectors would get together and they would uh, participate in something of an auction. And they would bid for the right to raise that figure for Rome. Having raised that figure, and after they purchased that right, whatever was left, they could keep for themselves. And so you can imagine how these individuals, competing so anxiously to get this opportunity, would use their right to tax, hiring soldiers to protect themselves and to enforce their demands upon people. They became wealthy men. But this wealth came at a high personal cost. Rome may have appreciated their services, but their fellow Israelites, you can imagine, certainly did not. In Jesus' day, the rabbis of Israel classed tax collectors along with prostitutes and thieves. As a class, they were so despised and so distrusted by Jews that Jewish law forbid them to testify in a court of law and forbid them even to go to a synagogue. Now Jesus has been in a house where four men opened the hole in the ceiling and lowered their paralyzed friend down before him on a stretcher. 
Chapter 5 and verse 22, we read there, Jesus knew what they were thinking as he raises this man up. And he says, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? I'm sorry, not as he raises him up, but as he says rather in verse 20, your sins are forgiven. He knows that what they are thinking, verse 22. Verse 23, he then says, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. And immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. So Jesus is in this house. He has raised this individual in demonstration that he has power to forgive sin. And now if we put this together with Mark's account, he leaves the house, walks along the Sea of Galilee, stops to teach a crowd of hearers, and then comes across one of these despicable tax booths, perhaps on the road where he's walking. And it is here at verse 27 of Luke chapter 5 that we see Jesus choosing Levi. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. After this, that's after the healing of this paralytic, here's Levi sitting at his toll booth, a man whose greed for money is greater than his desire to worship with God's people at synagogue. That's what we do know about Levi. Here he is, perhaps collecting this toll tax from fellow Jews who travel along the road, and as we put it together with the setting of the day and the background that we find, he very well may have been there taxing each wheel on each cart and then taking some of the luggage that was on the cart and looking through it, some of the Uh, the containers that were there and trying to find things that had been purchased so that he could tax them. Finding things perhaps that were about to be sold at market so he could tax them. And basically presenting himself as a constant nuisance to everyone who went by his tax booth. This is Levi. This is his world. This is the world he has chosen for himself to ostracize himself from Israel, from the synagogue, And to live this life, Levi's daily routine, however, was about to be overwhelmed with the phenomenal. For as Jesus sees him there, we see in verse 27, he went and he sees this man sitting at his tax booth and says, follow me. He sees him. The Greek word indicates that he sets his eyes on him. It's a little different word than is typically used for just looking at someone. But he sets his eyes on him, and it may indicate, this is just guesswork, but it may indicate that he had seen him before and recognized him. At any rate, he sets his eyes on Levi. He studies this man and says to him, follow me. Now, to get the sense of that, we have got to understand the rabbinical background, the rabbis, the teachers of Israel, and their entire work. By this point in time, Jesus was a renowned rabbi whose fame had spread widely. Remember, the religious leaders have come all the way from Jerusalem to the south, all the way north here to the region of Upper Galilee, to sit and listen to this rabbi speak. So Jesus' fame has spread far and wide. And remember that right here in Capernaum, Jesus has healed the sick. They brought the sick to him, chapter 5 and verse 40, in a line. And he healed every last one of them. 
In chapter 5 and verse 41, we find that Jesus has in this same town been casting out demons, and the demons are coming out shrieking, you are the Son of God. Now, Levi may be ostracized from the Jews, but he doesn't live under a rock. He knows who Jesus is. Everyone in Capernaum knows who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus has here in Capernaum preached to large crowds by the seashore. There's no one living anywhere around that is oblivious to this man's work. Even a social outcast like Levi may well have been standing on the fringes and hearing Jesus speak at one of his sermons. Levi was not permitted in the synagogue of Capernaum, but there was no law against him standing by the seashore and listening to this radical rabbi speak. So perhaps Jesus recognized him as one who had listened to his sermons. We don't know. There's nothing filled in for us here. We just simply know he says, follow me. Now that should make the hair stand up on our arms. It doesn't, probably, because we don't, again, really live in the rabbinical environment. But when a rabbi of Israel said, follow me, it was a formal offer. He was not saying, would you please come over here a minute? I'd like a word with you. It was not, would you give me some time? I want to show you something. Follow me was not simply talking about location. It was a call to a disciple. Follow me in the context of discipleship means this, we need to see this. There was this careful nationwide weeding process to find in each Israelite village and town and region the very brightest young men. They would demonstrate their wisdom, first of all, by memorizing large chunks of the Old Testament, certainly the first five books of the Old Testament, by age 12. And from that point, the weeding process would continue to see if they're not only able to memorize the Scripture, but begin to put it together and to understand the theological connections of the Old Testament law. The boys who rose as the very cream of the crop in all of this were then sent to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there all the great rabbis of Israel would be meeting. They were everything in Israel. They were the icons. They were the popular speakers. They were the athletes. They were the entertainers. They were the politicians. Everything that our culture, where it places attention, that was all centered on the rabbis, and particularly those who were capable enough to speak and to teach in Jerusalem. So the young boy would go, filled with nervous energy, and would find several rabbis teaching there in Jerusalem and would sit down at the fringes and listen to the rabbis. And it was the disciples' job to hear the rabbis and to find a rabbi that he thought was sort of on his wavelength. There were some rabbis that were more oriented toward certain theological themes and some that may have been more oriented toward the application of Scripture with the common people. Whatever it was, this boy would try to find a place and then would screw up all the courage he had in his heart one day and would walk forward to the rabbi and would ask the rabbi, may I be your disciple? At that point, a test would begin. Let's start by quoting Genesis through Deuteronomy. And the boy would begin. 
Then he would go into various lessons that had been learned and find if this young man had the theological connections made in his mind and was he capable and sharp and could he answer uh, uh, questions. Remember Jesus in this setting in Jerusalem? He's asking questions nobody can answer. They're all amazed at the power of this young man's mind. This was the process. At the end of this testing process, if the rabbi was agreeable, he would permit you to join him. So in a sense, the disciple chose the rabbi, and the rabbi agreed or sent the young man home. That is the context in which Jesus comes and says to a tax collector, follow me. This is the end of the equation. Matthew, Levi, called either one, but Levi missed the cut. He never made it to Jerusalem. Somewhere he got cut out so far he didn't even mind never going to synagogue again for the rest of his life because he was a tax collector now. But Jesus saw something no one else did. And he says to this tax collector at his tax booth of all places, follow me. It is a formal invitation and Levi drops everything. And when he dropped everything in this context, he never came back to it. From this point forward, his life as a disciple would revolve around becoming a virtual clone of the rabbi. You learn to think like the rabbi. You follow him everywhere he goes. You attend him, but your job is to do more than carry his cloak and his scrolls. Your job is to learn everything that he does. You become his imitator, day in and day out. I heard a lecture by a scholar, a Jewish scholar, who recently claimed that even to this day, discipleship was taken so seriously and is taken so seriously among those that are committed to this that they even go into the restroom with the rabbi to learn from him. They're to learn how he prays. And he said that one of the typical prayers is as they come out of the restroom to wash their hands, they pray, thank you God for making my body with holes. Which as the teacher observes, seems like a rather strange prayer until one of them doesn't work right. And then the young man someday comes to understand what the prayer intended. Now that's a Jewish environment and they're real happy with that kind of thing. They can live with that. But it's that intimate. You figure out what the rabbi does all the time. You figure out what makes him tick. You figure out how he prays. You figure out how he lives his life. Even in the bathroom. Well, here is this wildly popular, miracle-working rabbi standing before Levi's tax booth and says, follow me. I, I, you can just see Levi, me? You want me to, me to follow you? I can't imagine what must have gone through his brain. This breaks every cultural rule. It shatters it. This social religious outcast who is not even capable of going to the synagogue 
because of his defilement. This man who has sold his soul to Rome, this man who has loved money more than being with the people of God, this great rabbi says to him, follow me. Jesus essentially says, yes, I do mean you. I'm choosing you as my disciple. Well, Levi dropped everything. Verse 28. Levi got up, he left everything, and followed him. That's what you do when you're a disciple. You become a follower of your master. It was quite amazing to see Peter and Andrew and James and John leave their fishing boats in chapter 5 and verse 11. But you know when you drop your fishing business, you don't forget how to fish. As a matter of fact, if you come back to your fishing business, it's really not all that difficult to get back in. You find a boat and you find some nets and you work on with a crew and you get back into the business. In fact, that's what these fishermen will do after Jesus dies, remember? They go back to fishing for a while. But you know, when Levi turned away from his tax gathering, he was leaving the life he knew forever. You don't go back to collecting taxes. There are people that want your place. And there's no tax collector ever again who's going to take in a tax collector for a second interview who had before left his post. I don't know how much Levi dealt with details and turned his business over to others, but that's not what Luke cares for us to understand. Jesus said, follow me, and he left it all. He dropped his world. He dropped his life. And he said, I will now imitate this rabbi. Now, discipleship is going to play very, a very important role in our understanding of this gospel and all of the gospels. And so I want to take a few minutes to caution against a couple of misunderstandings as we relate to this theme. I hope you're drawing some connections there. To think of the undeserved call of Jesus to Levi to follow him. But let's put ourselves with Levi, and I want to draw out two cautions. First of all, some people equate the call to follow Jesus in the Gospels with the call to trust Jesus as Savior today. I think this is misguided. When Jesus called a man to follow him as his disciple, Jesus was not saying, receive me by faith as your personal Savior. Now that may have been part of the package. That may have been part of the issue here with Levi. I don't know. But we have to remember, I could throw in here too, the rich young ruler. Perhaps for him it was a call to saving faith in Jesus Christ. But we have to remember if the individual Jesus called was unsaved, the fact remains that Jesus had not yet died, he had not yet risen from the dead, and the call is not precisely the same as placing saving faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now stick with me here for a while. Some of the people Jesus called his disciples were already regenerate Old Testament believers. Theoretically, if they had dropped dead five minutes before Jesus called them to follow him, they would be in heaven. 
The call to follow Jesus was a call to specific Jews to abandon life as they knew it in order to follow their new rabbi, Jesus, wherever he went. Remember, though, there were other people who were called disciples, who embraced Jesus' teaching, identified with his message of repentance, but who did not necessarily follow Jesus wherever he went. In fact, Jesus told some of his disciples not to follow him, to go home. Now, they had to be ready to follow him if he called them. They had to be willing to do anything that he called them to do. They had to be willing to drop it all if he asked. But he did not always ask, which indicates, again, that the call to follow Jesus should not be equated with the call to trust Jesus as Savior. They're not identical. But having said that, there's a caution there. Some make the two exactly the same. Let's go on the other side of it. Some people equate the call to follow Jesus in the Gospels with a believer's act of consecration today. This is also misguided. Some argue that the call to discipleship has nothing to teach us about salvation on this side of the cross. They argue that discipleship was and is an act of commitment on the part of believers. A dedicatory decision to enter a deeper walk with God than the average Christian will ever enjoy. Thus, discipleship becomes optional for believers. The committed will take up the call to discipleship. The rest will just go to heaven. This, too, is very misguided and forces upon the New Testament call to discipleship a situation that was never there. I think the true ground lies somewhere in between these two. Those who followed Jesus before he died and rose again were obviously functioning in a different era of salvation history than we are, and we must not forget that. But make no mistake, and please hear me, the Jesus of their day is the same Jesus of this day. They're not two different people. And when this same Jesus calls you to trust him as Savior, that is a call to drop everything, to repent and to follow him as your Lord and Master. We are either disciples of Jesus Christ, we are his followers, or we are lost in sin. James 2 makes it crystal clear that no one will steal a ticket to heaven from Jesus and live their earthly lives like the devil. Those who place genuine faith in Jesus Christ as Savior turn from their sin and embrace a new way of life as Jesus' disciples. We are in that sense just like Levi. We're following him. I agree then with the commentator who calls Levi's experience here a paradigm of the kind of discipleship Jesus commands today. He demanded it then He demands it now. He is the same Jesus whom we all must follow. And let me say then just one more point on that. If we are followers of Jesus Christ, we have no business living life as we choose. We are called to live life as our master decides for us. That's the joy of discipleship. Comparing with the other gospel writers, we believe some time passes between verses 28 and 29 after Levi receives this phenomenal call to discipleship. He's thrilled with his new life to which Jesus has called him and he wants everyone to know 
what has happened to him and to hear about this life. No one who truly follows Christ wants to keep the joy to himself. And so Jesus calls Levi. Now Levi hosts Jesus, verse 29. We have a description of a great feast. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. His house is Levi's house, and Mark makes that more clear. This large crowd of tax collectors. The meal is well attended by, can we say, white-collar workers, in a sense. They earned their wealth by doing very little themselves other than misusing other people and leveraging money from them. These are not good people. They are manipulative. They're materialistic. They're self-centered men. There were also others joining them who apparently found it very comfortable to be in this company. Now, we don't know how interested they may have been in Jesus' teaching, but we do know that in a broad sense, these are not good people. They're eating together. In the ancient world, more than our own time, eating with someone bespoke of fellowship and camaraderie. These were Levi's friends, and he wanted them to meet Jesus, and a large number of them are willing to do so. Here they are gathered at the feast. And it's quite a feast. It's a great banquet for a large number of people. Now, some cranky soul out there is going to say, now is that really a wise way to use money? Shouldn't he be doing something else with this money? Well, I don't know if we really have that in us to the end. I mean, if he's throwing a great feast to celebrate his 25th wedding anniversary, nobody's going to grump. If he's throwing a great feast to celebrate his father's 75th birthday, nobody's going to really have a problem with that, are they? Who can deny this man the joy of celebrating his call to follow Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord and Master? In Levi's case, perhaps even his becoming a member of the kingdom of God. Jesus didn't have a problem with it. But you know, it wasn't just the penny pinchers who were upset, was it? Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. Is it about the money that was lost? No, it is, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they might have complained on the other one too, but here's the main point. Why are you eating with those people? What is wrong with you? We learn here that Jesus' disciples were also obviously at the meal. Mark's account indicates that the Pharisees were not primarily concerned with the disciples of Jesus, of course, but with Jesus. Why is this rabbi eating with these people, these sinners? Their grump was primarily that they were hyperactive in their interest about purification rituals. They were particularly concerned to keep themselves separate from ritually and morally impure people, and the tax collectors were both. Levi and his cronies had gained their wealth by collaborating with pagan Romans and by misusing fellow Jews. If you eat with these people, you're telling them they're all right. You're saying, I'm on your side. You can't do that. It's a sin. Why does Jesus eat with such people? Why does he participate with them in their sin, in a sense? Verse 31. 
Jesus answered them. So this, obviously there's a lot here that isn't filled in. Somehow it gets back to, from the disciples to Jesus and Jesus to the Pharisees and he answers them. Here's the bottom line. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now believe me, Jesus is not saying to the Pharisees, you guys are healthy, so I don't need to talk to you. That's not what he's saying. We're not sure exactly, in fact, what this means. He may be saying that he's going to spend his time with the morally sick, which he did. He may be saying that he cannot help the self-righteous, which in fact he can't. The point is clear. Sinful people need a physical doctor or, or a spiritual doctor, just as physical people who are sick need a physical doctor. I, he says, verse 32, have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. That's what he means by saying it's the sick that need a doctor. I have come. There is my mission, says Jesus. This is intended as no compliment to the Pharisees, and Matthew brings that out more clearly as Jesus quotes Hosea 6 and verse 6, where God says, I desire mercy. Pharisees, you want to know why I'm here at this meal with these people? It is not because I am encouraging them in their sin. It is because I have mercy on them. Something you can't find anywhere in your puny heart for any sinner. I have mercy on these people, and that's why I'm with them. I'm not collaborating with them in their sin. My mission, however, is to go after sinners and to call them to repentance. Like John the Baptist, I'm calling people to humble themselves, to acknowledge their sinful condition. If you think you are pretty good as you are, I can't help you anyway. But if you know that you are lost and morally corrupt, I am the spiritual physician who's come to heal the sick and the lost. Remember what Jesus does in the healing of the paralytic. He establishes, I can forgive sin. I have the authority to forgive sin. Now that's exactly what he intends to do. And it's a very apt analogy. Not every doctor in this world seems to care a whole lot about people, but all physicians get in among sick people. And when physicians see the ugliness of disease, they don't recoil. They roll up their sleeves and they get busy helping. They're not people who retreat to quarantine. They are people who willingly expose themselves to disease. That's what a doctor does. In like manner, Jesus knew that if he was going to call sinners to repentance, he was going to have to get in among sinners. And I want to stop on that point and ask, as a church, and you as a Christian, are we following Jesus on this point? Or are we more like the Pharisees? Now, I'm fully committed to a lifestyle of separation from the ways of this fallen world. I want to live a holy and distinctive life of separation from what people do in rebellion against God. In fact, that's the only way that I can be a physician. A physician cannot come in and treat those who are diseased when that physician is dying and diseased of the same illness. We can only treat moral failing if our own moral house is in order. But we need to come to terms with the fact that the Savior that we follow ate with sinners. 
He did not join them in their sin. He did not confirm them in their wrongdoing. And if there is a crowd that draws you into their sin, separate from it because you're not doing any good anyway. But we must remember, as Jesus taught, that we are candles in this dark world and we have no business being under a bushel basket. We need to get up on the candle stand and shine. Now, I'm not talking here about casual, anonymous, evangelistic contact. That's all good in its place and time. We're not talking about going from house to house to proclaim the gospel to people we don't know. That's not the point here. We're not talking about inviting a neighbor to church. That's not the point here. Nor are we talking about running a program which you encourage people to attend. That's not the point here. Levi purposefully invited sinners to sit down and eat with him in his house, and Jesus willingly joined them for a great banquet. We need, as faithful, holiness-oriented Christians, to bury the quarantine mentality. We need to take the healing balm of Christ among the sinners. Recently, a young pastor in the area, youth pastor, called me and he said, could I take you out to eat? I have got a problem and I'd really like to share it with you and just see what you might have to help me. I obviously agreed and we sat down and he explained his situation. He'd been laboring for several months to get the teens in his youth group to connect with their unsaved friends. In fact, he saw this connection, large church, which he serves, right down the street from a public high school. Now, any youth pastor that's worth his salt puts two and two together and says, says we've got something here. So his idea was, because he can't go into the public school and do anything, was to get the young people in his church to form a bridge to the school to allow him to minister and for him to help them to minister in the local high school and to win young people to Christ and to use the opportunities that they had as a church to minister to this community. That's right there on their front door. He said, I labored for months and got absolutely nowhere. And then he said this, I came to realize, now I might be wrong in my absolute 100% here, I didn't confirm all this, but this is what I remember him saying, Every single teen in our church is a homeschool student. And all of them combined, not one of them knows an unsaved teen. They don't know any. Now, there's something really wrong with that picture. And I'm not so naive to say that the problem is homeschooling although that form of education certainly presents some challenges to parents that they're going to have to take very seriously. 
Obviously, children can be just as isolated from unbelievers in a Christian school, just as isolated from unbelievers in a public school, if they so choose, particularly in the large type of schools that we have in our area here. My point is simply that an entire youth group that does not even know a lost peer, there's something wrong with that. And I'd like to suggest, as I did to him, it's not all the teen's fault. That's not right. And I say that because I followed Jesus, who ate with sinners. He knew people who were lost, and he got together with them. He rubbed shoulders with them. He saw himself as a physician to heal people, not as someone isolated to quarantine. Separation from sin is good, and it is right, and it is a theme that we want to continue to proclaim to our young people and to practice. But separation from meaningful interaction with sinners is wrong. Are you a friend of sinners? Are you a friend of sinners? It's a convicting question. For me, and I think it should be for all of us. It troubles me, too, this story, which is, means nothing to us as a church particularly. But it's troubling to me when I think of Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember what he prayed to the Father. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And there's a boatload of Christian parents these days who are ordering their children's lives to do exactly what Jesus would not do. To so isolate that we never touch a lost world. And what I say on children is just one point of application which needs to continue forward in all of our lives. As adults, I don't think that any of us could live in such an isolated manner as to not know an unbeliever personally. But it is possible for us to so skirt around unbelievers at work, unbelievers in the neighborhood, as to never really let anybody know who you are and what you believe. That is wrong. That's not why we're here. If we are that isolated, we may as well just go to heaven. I've encouraged you in weeks past, and I'm encouraging myself and praying and seeking how we might continue to reach a lost world for Christ. And I suggested the possibility of us using Bible studies. We're a very trained church. We know the scriptures. We know theology. And I think it would be very meaningful and doable for us to begin to meet with Bible studies with people that don't know the Lord. Now, there's only one way that can work, and this came to me again as I thought through this passage. We cannot draw people into Bible studies, evangelistic Bible studies, when we don't know anyone. You're not going to get the clerk who's checking out your groceries to get in a Bible study with you. You might call the manager on you if you try to do that, but they're not going to get in a Bible study with you. 
Now maybe, again, over time and as you get to know that person and something like that, we have got to develop relationships with people who trust us and figure out, maybe they think we're odd, but at least they find out we do love them. We do care about them. We're decent people. And let the light shine in a relationship with them. Then as we ask such a person, you know, would you ever be interested to sit down and talk with me? We could talk through some issues in the Bible and study the Bible just for so many weeks and just like to share that with you. Then you're asking someone who knows who you are. They know how you tick. They know what's going on in your life. And there's a level of trust and confidence there. We can't do that if no one knows us. And I'm trying to be honest with what is before us here today. My master ate with sinners. The master that I follow ate with sinners. And so the goal, I think, is for us to relate to people so they see that we love them and that we have something that we'd like to share with them and to merge into such a discussion. We are soul doctors, and there is a dying world out there. Are we taking the healing balm of Jesus to those in need, or are we isolating among those who are already well? Let me just throw in the qualifier here. We want and should, and by God's grace, will continue to drive hard after developing an edification base within our church to build one another up in the faith. We need this time together to think as God's people. We need to be alone with God's people. We need to elevate Scripture in ways that you can't elevate it when you're talking to unbelievers. It's not to throw all of that out. And we need, obviously, to work with our children to isolate them from some people in some situations. But in the big picture, as I look at Eden Baptist Church and as I look at my own life, I'm trying to just be honest with you. We're pretty isolated. Now, we're not nearly as bad as some situations, but I'm not worried about those situations. I'm worried about us. We tend to be pretty isolated people. We run from Christian convocation to Christian convocation, whatever the context And we really need to take time to meet people who are lost and to get to know them. Now, other qualifiers. Obviously, there are some who know too many unbelievers. And church just sort of flits in maybe a couple hours a week and out we go and all of my contacts and most of my engagements are with unbelievers. There's something wrong with that too. But let's just focus in on what we have before us here you can fill in all the qualifiers. Are you a friend of sinners? Are you a physician that is out there with the sick and making a difference for Jesus Christ? And are you, as those that are families, leading your home to have that sort of bent? I think we've got to be in that direction if we're going to honor what our Master did. Let's pray to that end, and let's seek his face, that we will do it as he would have us to do it. Our Lord, we come before you humbly, knowing that we fall very short of the calling that is ours. Life is so very busy for us. 
And we're very concerned with many of the things that we see in our fallen world and want to avoid to move away from some things and some people for that matter. But I pray, Lord, that we would follow you, the friend of sinners, the physician of the spiritually sick, and that we would get in among unbelievers and not be so isolated and so careful that we fail to shine as light in a lost world. It means, Lord, that we need to grow in holiness. Not to minimize holiness, but to grow in it. That we would not be overtaken and overcome by the sins of unbelievers. But it means as well, Lord, that there needs to be a genuineness and a courage and a, a confidence in your power and strength that we can mix it up with the people who don't know you as Savior. I pray, God, that you will work in the hearts of those here who are parents to whatever situation, wherever they find themselves, to, to help them to navigate through these matters and to teach their children to relate honorably to unbelievers. And I pray, God, for those of us that are adults, that we will orient our lives, not becoming so busy with protecting our families and serving within the church and doing the things that you've called us to do that we just forget about an unbelieving world. People need the Lord. I pray that we'd realize that. We'd sense that. We'd understand that we are light and must shine. Help us to this end, Lord. And I pray, God, that you will help us to orient our lives in a direction that will please you in this matter. And I thank you for those who do. What an encouragement they are. I pray, God, that you will build me and build us as a church to do better than we have and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ as we should. Help us to this end, I pray. For any who are here that do not know you as personal Savior, Lord, I ask that you'll draw them into the family of God by your grace and sovereign desire. I pray, God, that you'll open their eyes and that they will see their need to respond to the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified and risen. May there be someone, even today, who says, I will become his follower and embraces him as Savior. Lord, work to that end. We think of those who heard the gospel last week that were not believing. I pray for the continued efforts, continuing efforts that take place here as we try to point others to you. I pray, dear God, that you will help us to see how we are to relate to this world and to have fruit. Please grant us fruit for our labors. May we never do so in a competitive way. May we never do so in a business kind of way, recruiting people. But I pray that we will faithfully share the gospel of Christ and that you'll help us to this end. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.